Before we speak to um, Rabbi Yisrael Besser, uh, we need to acknowledge the um, passing of Mrs. Rachel Zlotowicz. Rabbi Mayer Zlotowicz, of course, her husband, one of the co-founders of Art Scroll, and somebody who has uh, been responsible, as we've discussed, um, for an absolute revolution in the Jewish and uh, holy book publishing. And Mrs. Rachel Zlotowicz, of course, Maris Chava Fega Rachel, Basher B'chaim, Chaikel, the um, uh, the uh, the wife of Rabbi Mayer Zlotowicz, who passed away, and the funeral took place yesterday, and of course to the entire Zlotowicz family, with whom we are uh, so proud and happy to be close with, we say, Hamakim Nachem Etchem, you should know of no more tsar, and uh, certainly Mrs. Rachel Zlotowicz's memory should be for a blessing, which no doubt it will be. Uh, I say this as we're about to uh, discuss on the air with Yisrael Besser, yet another amazing Art Scroll product. I do remind you, everybody, that our friends at Art Scroll offer something unique and different for our listeners. When you use promo code radio on the artscroll.com site, free shipping and major discount. Free shipping and major discount. Even with all the discounts that are there for Hanukkah, you can't get the free shipping on any amount if you don't use promo code radio. So you know the rule. When you go to artscroll.com, always use promo code radio. The book is called Reb David, The Life and Legacy of Rabbi David Feinstein. Yisrael Besser is with us live via telephone. Happy Hanukkah to you, and welcome back to JM in the AM. To you as well, Nachum, and thank you for having me. It's always so nice to be here. I appreciate that. I said it before. I think I said it every time we speak, (laughs) that every time I have the privilege of being on, I learn new things about how to interview from you, so... It's a good learning experience to watch the master. I appreciate that very, very much. This interview is going to be very different, Rabbi Besser. Very, very different. I'm scared. And, my heart is pounding, and I'm intimidated. Oh, not a matter Honestly, of scared. It, just different. And I, I want to make it clear. I don't, I don't profess to, I don't profess to be anything more than a neighbor of Rabbi David Feinstein for 31 years. That's it. That's my entire thing. I'm not a Talmud of his. I didn't spend a tremendous amount of time with him, but I, I am somebody who had the incredible privilege. And my family had the incredible privilege of uh, of being um, a, a neighbor of his, and somebody who I would interact with for a long, long time. And therefore, this is a little bit a little bit different. I'm sitting and reading the book. What do I do? What do I do? The Shabbos before a conversation with Israel Besser. Everybody knows the Shabbos before a conversation with Israel Besser. I sit in my living room and I devour whatever book he has just written that we're going to be speaking about on the air. And I'm sitting in my living room this Shabbos after lunch, and my my sons are around me, and I'm reading the book and I start laughing. And they and they say, "What's so funny?" I said, "It just nobody's going to believe that this story is true, and we know that this." Story is 100 percent true. Not that we know each individual story, but it's but, but it's a true story. Yeah. But it's so believable. As crazy as it sounds, it's so believable. And then, of course, as time went on and they got used to my whole routine, I would laugh and they would say, "Okay, what's this story?" And I would tell them that story of why you know it brought a smile to my face. It is and it's unbelievable. Those out there who think that they know what humility is all about, those out there who think they can even relate to our tradition. Additional saying that Moshe Rabbeinu was, you know, among the most modest yet knew his greatness, which for some of us is so hard to understand, right? It's so difficult sometimes to understand that. How could someone be aware of their greatness and internalize that at the same time be among the most humble people you'll ever meet? And 
Yisrael Besser, you have to admit that Rodovid Feinstein fits that bill. Incredible, godless. It's so interesting that you said that. Um, I, I wrote this in the book. Rabbi Yashav referred to Rodovid Feinstein as the Anav Mikal Adam, which is the word that the Torah uses for Moshe Rabbeinu right. and nobody else. So, you know, obviously it's okay to make that comparison in terms of he had that midah all, all the way, the humility. The other thing I, I just want to comment on that you said you were just a neighbor of David Feinstein. I don't think I've ever written about somebody who was so much one with his neighborhood and a product of the neighborhood. That means a lot of times the yeshivas live in a certain place. Right. I think that the Shmuel Kamenetsky lives in Philadelphia. I don't think that you see Philadelphia in everything he does. And I don't think you see him in Philadelphia. I think of David Feinstein on the east side, we're one and the same. The, right. the midas of the east side, uh, the unpretentious, uh, simple, direct, real, authentic way of living on the east side, he reflected it, and he probably painted it as well, him and his father. The fine scenes on the east side go together. Yeah, no question So you're not just a neighbor. You're well, an east sider. I appreciate, so I appreciate that. And tongue-in-cheek, my kids said to me, you know, how could it be that he didn't write that we would see him in the lobby every morning when we went to elementary school? How's that not in the book? And what's funny about, and what's funny about that is they take pride in that interaction. They actually were able to relate to him. How is it that kids, that little kid, if you read this book, it's unbelievable. How is it that little kids, those who were related to him and those who weren't related to him, felt this incredible closeness and felt that they were able to actually relate to this Torah giant? Isn't that unbelievable that my kids or any kids would talk about, you know, what it was like to be in the same lobby with him and not speak as if it was, you know, in awe. Of course, they had respect, but you get my point. But literally, as he was yeah. just, you know, this somebody they loved interacting with. Anyway. Exactly as he would have wanted it, yeah. you know, to see your kids, to see your kids going to school. He really enjoyed these experiences. They, they meant something to him. Unbelievable. Anyway, I, I, that's, I'm telling you, folks, the, the stories are amazing and the stories are simple. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's criticism out there when there are stories written about Gedolim and one cannot, you know, understand what the godless in the story is. And these it's 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 you're literally looking at the person who was consulted with from all around the world, right? There was not a rabbi, including the other Torah giants, uh, who at times would not consult with him on these major issues. We're talking about life and death issues, life and death communal issues, life and death personal issues. And at the same time, he had this unbelievable, unique ability to desire to be and in fact to be, I don't want to say one of the guys because that's not that's not the way I should be portraying it, Rabbi Besser, but just to, you know, to 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 fit in and to be able to interact with the average person out there. I think that he realized early on, and I touched on this a little bit, that he was so much more than a lot of the people around him that the only way he would survive is by working extra hard to be normal. You know, he, he used the word for the guys, but he would say the boys. He called, you know, until he was Nesta, deep into his 80s, he was going out for breakfast at, originally every day. At the end, it was only once a week, you know, once the East Side lost its establishment and then right. going to Williamsburg. But he, he would call them the boys. I'm going out the boys. The boys want to go out. The boys needed another five minutes. He very much enjoyed that. And he, he worked so hard on that, on just being an easy person to be around. He didn't take up weight. He didn't suck up the oxygen in the room, you know. You see these pictures over the videos of him sitting at a Hanukkah party with his Enochach, yep. like any other Zaydi, just enjoying them, enjoying the conversation, not no heaviness. Yeah, and 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 and, and he and he would admit that that's when he was at his happiest. 
You know, if you're going to be poli- if you're going to be politically correct in the Jewish world, you have to say you're at your happiest in the base medrash. But he would not have a problem. And of course, he was very happy in the base medrash, and maybe very often his happiest. But I mean, it, it, Malcolm, it, less than five minutes until you did that thing about political correctness <laughs> in the Jewish world, you beat your record. I think your personal best. You just beat it. Has that happened before? I don't remember. Uh, we, and, we usually end up there. But it's uh, it, it, it's just amazing. And look, I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story that I think I've uh-huh. shared with you off the air. And it's not in the book. And I, and I don't know, you know, the, thank God I did get a story in the book. I'm very happy to say, folks, very happy about that. Page 308. Anybody who wants to uh, who wants to reference it, that's where it is. But there's a story that happened with me that was not in the book that I must tell you, Rabbi Besser. We're in, we're in our small shul, right? We're in our small, small synagogue, the Mizrahi. And every Shabbos, uh, the Rosh Hashiva, Rav David Feinstein would walk with an appropriate entourage. Uh, that was not his, by the way, that wasn't his way. He never, but Shabbos was different. You know, Shabbos, everybody, you know, walks home with him, of course. And, um, and, and, and he would always pass the Mizrahi. And, and there was somebody in shul that Shabbos that was making a kiddish in honor of the fact that their relative had come back from the Afghanistan war uh, in good health, safely. Not a from person, obviously, you know, the person in shul is from, saying that this relative, and that's, what, and that's what they were doing. They were making a kiddush, thanking God that their relative had come home from the war and that they were safe and sound. And there was somebody in shul from the yeshiva shavelt, let's put it that way, who, uh, you know, was there. And uh, I said to him, you know, would you like me to ask Rav David Feinstein to come into the kiddush? And he said, you're telling me that if you ask Rav David Feinstein to, at the last minute, walk into Stama Kiddush, which has nothing to do with anything other than somebody who was in the U.S. military, you're telling me that you can get him to come in. There's no way you could do that. I said, you sure? I, so I walk outside. <laughs> I've told you this story. I walk outside. I see the entourage coming down East Broadway. And I say, Rebbe, we're making a Kiddush because somebody's in shul whose relative has just returned safely from serving the U.S. military. And he's you know, being Makar Tov, et cetera. Rav David Feinstein doesn't ask me a question about what I just said. He doesn't, he doesn't hesitate uh, about what I just said. He makes a right turn, goes directly up the staircase, straight to the table, ready to make Kiddush because I asked him to come in and join us. Now, I ask you, Rabbi Besser, do you think that all of the Torah giants and all the leaders of Israel would have reacted the way he did to that invitation? The question is obviously not a relevant question. I'm not an expert on what they would do, what they wouldn't do. I think that every single one of them would do what the Torah tells them to do at that moment, and probably they would all they would all do similar things. I just don't think that people would ask all of those. And Rav David created the situation where you were so comfortable with him, knowing not only that he wanted to be a good neighbor and that he liked you, but that he was really genuinely happy with that person Simcha yeah. in the relative's homecoming. And it was for sure that you did the right thing by asking him in terms of him. Not just for your friend, but also for him, because he enjoyed that. He wanted that. This was his place. It's unbelievable. And again... You know, he, he was a big fundraiser at the end of his life. Right. Never, never for MTJ, always for other people. Right. And he could have made a lot of money by going away for Shabbos, you know, especially in the summer months of the Catskills, where people would pay money. People were offering fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 a year, um, a meal, Friday night, Shabbos day, just for this chus. And he wouldn't live the east side, Shabbos. That was his place, and that's where he wanted to be. He didn't want to be anywhere else. Yeah. Understood. So you you just tapped into the fact that he was just a good neighbor and a good person. Yeah, exactly. And you know the the 
there are certain things in this book that I would imagine, I don't want to say that you wondered if you should have written about it or not, but I mean, you know, when people talk about the fact that he would enjoy doing crossword puzzles, when people would, you know, that he would shop, that he would do the shopping. I got negative uh, feedback from people saying, why is that relevant? Look, you know, I didn't make these decisions on my own, obviously. There are people I asked if I should be including these stories or not. There are quite a few that didn't make it in and quite a few that did make it in. I usually ask Rabbi Sherman at art school. He just has this tremendous uh, instinct for propriety and, and what's right, and what should be included, what shouldn't be included. He's usually my final. And the crossword puzzles, I, I, I think it's, it's the human side of David. It's, it's the side that took simple joy in those pleasures that the Torah allows a person to have. Really enjoy them. Same way when someone brought in bourbon after Shachris in the morning, he was on a Wednesday, he was very happy. You know, nice way to start off the day. Yeah. Nothing wrong with enjoying life a bit, huh? And with, with it, enjoying and celebrating the gifts that the Vodafone did allow us to have, it, it was very much part of, part of that, the essence and the spirit in MTJ. Right. And he also... Uh, the first time I met him seriously was I interviewed him for the book on Mayor's Lottowitz. I went to the east side. There was an eclipse, like a solar eclipse, and they were giving out these... Glasses. Sort of like binocular things that you could wrap around your eyes. You know what I'm talking about? Like sure. paper things, paper yeah. glasses. Yeah. And he was doing it. That's where I met him. He was standing on, on FDR Drive doing it. And he was very worried that Robinson couldn't get down. She was with a walker. He wanted her to see it too. So he was trying to figure out which window if he wanted her to also have that experience. It's not a conventional look for a god to be standing with, you know, the things wrapped around his eyes. But he very much wanted to see it. You know, the Talmudim had brought him those glasses. It was just a different experience. Yeah. Of authenticity. And his experiences in the chemistry lab, when it came, when it, especially on things related to halacha, that he would become yeah. an expert in. And uh, the story you have about the oat matzahs, remember the story about the oat matzahs? Where, sure. Where, he, sure. Where, he, where he already had determined on a scientific basis that there was a heter for you know what had bothered Rabbi Heinemann about whether it should or shouldn't be used for Pesach. Because he didn't read his digest. That Correct. Because he had you read a real... You, you have to moisten oats in order to bake right. them. So he, he had made the chesed then as a teenager. How much, criticism, how much criticism did you get to mention Reader's Digest? None, none at all, because honestly, sadly, I don't think too many people today even know what Reader's Digest is. I think they missed it. And what about the relationship with the Rebbitson? She should live and be well. I mean, you know, and by the way, in, in all fairness to all Torah giants, you know, usually if you, uh, if, you, if you would do a biography about any Torah giant, you see the respect and the, you know, and the uh, care that they have for their life partners. So, you know, for their spouse. So it's not like, it's not like it doesn't exist in that world, but there was something unique there, wouldn't you say? Unique. And, and besides the credit to him, because he made his family, his wife and his children are extremely important to him. He was very much aware every birthday, an anniversary of an anical meant something to him. He would write. He wrote a lot of Chedusha Tari. He'd write on top of the page. If he was writing today's day, so today, Chafek, his life, he would write on top the birthday of whatever anical it was. That means he identified that he's in the year by which Anikla had been born. Aside from that, there's something very special on this. I didn't write this in the book, but I think Lakavid Nachum Segal, I think we could share this story. It meant so much to me. I didn't think it was proper to put in the book. Um, you understand why? Cause I, I don't like to write things that seem to disparage others. I don't like to build up somebody at the expense of others. Right. But for, in the, for the purpose of this conversation, she said something to me that is astonishing. She said that he wouldn't tell her anything. He, his lips were sealed about other people's issues and communal issues. And he wasn't a big cocker altogether, and she accepted that. She said she was once sitting 
with a group of wives of big rabbanim, Rosh Yeshivas, Dayanim, and they were talking about some kind of uh, issue that was going on. And she was completely unfamiliar with it. So a younger Rav's wife said to her, you don't know about this? My husband tells me everything. So she said she felt bad for a moment. Rebetzin Feinstein told me, my husband doesn't tell me everything, and this woman's tell, husband tells her everything. That must mean they have a better marriage, right? You know, she didn't articulate that. Mm-hmm. She said, it took me a while to realize that my husband didn't have to tell me everything. That our relationship was so strong and so trusting and so solid that he knew that he didn't have to tell me everything. I was so moved by it. Again, I didn't want to write that in the book because right. I, whoever that other person is doesn't have to feel badly or look badly. Right. But it, again, in terms of this conversation, you understand, you, you know them and you know the East Side yeah. and you know the nature of its people. Yeah. He was able to hang up the phone after an hour. Now imagine you're sitting there with your wife to dinner and someone calls you and you go out for an hour. And you, and you come back and your face is red. Your wife says, what happened? You say, eh, nothing. And you move on. You just keep eating supper. And she's totally comfortable in your, in your relationship. She doesn't have to ask you again. Or he would leave in the morning and come back at night. You know, what happened today? A lot of the stuff he couldn't say, a lot of stuff he wouldn't say. And I, I, this is the hardest book I ever wrote, to be honest with you, because he spoke so little. So nobody really knows what happened in those closed, you know, behind those closed doors. By most of us, yeshivas, like you said, there's an entourage of people who know a lot. They come on to other people for help. or for, he, he didn't need other people. Um, his closest people, you know them well, uh, Eugene, Yisachar Ginsburg, they're not talkers. You know, loyal to David all the way. They were with him all the way. He trusted them implicitly, and that's it. They're the ones. If anybody knows anything, it's them. And they only opened up, you would suspect, to a certain degree when you spoke to them, or are you not sure? Um, they were, they, they, you know, Yisachar was privy to a lot because he was the go-between for a lot of the people. He was the fax machine for years, you know, bringing in the Shilas. Mm. Shared the, uh, he, he, you know, Yisachar is a wellspring of information about David. He was the driver, the Talmud, the confidant for so many years. And he, he enabled, you know, just, just the decency of, of, the, of David Feinstein and his people. Off topic a minute. When people would come to David, so everybody wants a picture with a gadol or a picture of their kid. Rav David would suggest the picture, suggest how to stand the pose, right. smile, and then Yisachar, besides emailing the picture, would take time after to print out the picture and put it in the mail to whoever right. it was who had stopped him in, in whatever chasana or, or restaurant it was. Right. Th- these people were, they had a, they had a mission, you know? Um, so they shared, I guess, as much as they thought was appropriate to share, and, and certainly no more. And there was certainly, you know, sometimes I have this thing that I do to people where I push them. You know, you're an interviewer, so you understand. Like, you sense that there's a good story. You sense that the person doesn't want to tell it to you, but you want it. So you push a little harder. There's no such thing with them. And that comes down to the, what the Robertson said. I, I, my marriage didn't need him to tell me everything. He spoke little, shared little. And yet they had this bond. You know, he, he would... When he reached it, he'd go to Lakewood, collect it, whatever. The first, he would go into a room because he didn't want one of the cell phones in the call to check in with his wife. Hey, how you doing? He would go into his host house, go into the study, and take the house phone or the office phone and call her and, and talk about her day like that, like a mensch. Right. Like a chassan would call a kala. A chassan right. doesn't call a kala casually, right. right? With details and asking questions and all that. Exactly. Whole thing. That's how it was until then. And, and you saw it when you saw them together. Reb David is the name of the book, The Life and Legacy of Rabbi David Feinstein who we miss like crazy. Israel Besser is with us live via telephone. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. Again, go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. What about the story? I think it was in St. Louis where someone suggested he take a picture with their child 
and he said, let me hold the child. It'll be much more meaningful to them, you know, later on. Just, just right. So these are two separate stories. This oh. was in Yisrael. <laughs> Sorry Rabbi, about that. You mentioned Rabbi Vladowitz. Rabbi Meir Vladowitz had an apartment in the plaza, right. and Rabbi David would stay there when he went there to Yisrael. And Rabbi Vladowitz had his son Chaim Vladowitz to set. He lived in Yisrael at the time to set up the apartment, help Rabbi David and the Rebbe and get settled. Right. You know, take them in, show them where the the fridge, the heating, whatever you have to know. So he came with his son. So before he left, he wanted a picture. So the son was an infant in a stroller. So he put the stroller near Abdavid to take a picture. So David said, it's, an, it's like an awkward picture. The kid's going to have a picture in a stroller. It's not the same. Let me hold the child. Right. So he took the child out of the stroller and held the child and then smiled again for the picture. <laughs> what was the other one, the St. Louis one? I think we have many stories from St. Louis because there was a couple that they were close to, Stuart and, and Debbie Rosenblum. They, uh, they were, they were, the, the Rebbitson had family, her nephew, who was, uh, who was Rav in St. Louis, and they would go, they went to every family simcha, by the way. He, he didn't miss the family simcha, and there was no difference between the Rashiva's family and the Rebbitson's family. The Greenbergs and the Feinstein was one thing to him. He, if he was invited and he felt like he could go, he went right. to family simcha. Tremendous focus on family and being there for family. So St. Louis was one of those places that they ended up over the years more than once. And they stayed by Stuart Rosenblum, and they became very close. And he told me his story. Wonderful guy from that part of the country. Uh, came to Yiddishkeit, not at the beginning of his life. Took him a while. And suddenly he has the Gadolada staying in his house. So people think, oh my gosh, you have a Dalai Feinstein thing, but he was completely intimidated by what that means. The Rosh Hashiva from New York, you know, he's a Valchuva from St. Louis. And he comes home, you know, to his guest there, and he has these twin uh, children. David's on the couch between his twins, reading them Curious George. That's, right. He said that's how the relationship started. Right. David saw the kids when he came in. Right. He took off a book and started to read them the book. That was the relationship that turned into a beautiful, beautiful relationship. The closeness between the couple, the two couples, was tremendous. And David enjoyed people who knew things. Um, you know, he didn't have it. He didn't always have the opportunity to converse about topics that he knew about because the people around, people like us in our world, don't know everything he knew. So when he took him to Gateway Arch and he knew the Clark explorations, Abdullah knew this fluently because he didn't forget anything. So anything he had learned in school, and he learned everything that was mandated to learn in school, he knew for the rest of his life. You know, so he was able to converse about that, history, geography. Not to add fuel to the fire. Oh, I think it was in in the book about Rabbi Meir's Lotto. It's where you cited where they were touring in Albany at the state capital, and Rabbi knew more than the tour guide. Wasn't it in that book that you read? Right, right. he corrected yeah. him on a year. He right. told the tour guide, I think. Right. He said, I think if you're saying it over in public, right. I don't want you to get embarrassed. He wouldn't have corrected. He wasn't a corrector. Right. But he felt that a tour guide is eventually going to get caught. To Rabbi it was obvious that somebody would expose the mistakes. To me, it's not so obvious. The tour guide was saying that this was founded in 1928, and he said, I think it's 1927. Right. Like, and the guy said, no, it's not true, and he went to check, and David was right. And everybody's lot of it said, how do you know that? He said, we learned it in elementary school. Right. Not to add fuel to the fire, but does Curious George get you in more trouble than the crossword puzzles or not? I think people, uh, again, it, when it's in the full tapestry of a David Feinstein's life, right. things just fit into place. When you see the seamless, uh, seamless harmony of the of the and Abedis Hashem that shaped him, then, then everything has its place. It, it doesn't make any sense, Nachum, for somebody to have learned. We're talking about somebody in this generation, he was alive two years ago, three years ago, who learned Shas hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Make us hear Shas once. Like, nobody knows the numbers. Rabbi Ruben said, people were saying uh, in Yeshiva, people said that he had finished Shas uh, three, four hundred times. So he asked if, David, if it's true, and if David laughed. That means he didn't deny it, and he would have, he said. 
he knew us be Ian, he knew everything. He knew Shokanach and Tor be Ian. He knew the Rishayim be Ian. He knew everything. You, we, there's no example of somebody asking him a shadow that he didn't have an answer fairly quickly. Everything was open before him, and yet he had time to sit at a great, great nephew Simcha in Brooklyn, smiling, enjoying the Simcha, because the Rebbeson was having a nice time. So, right. you know, I, I don't know about you. When I go to a Simcha, um, I'm impatient after three and a half minutes, and if my wife is still inside, I'm outside, you know, tapping the, the walls and I'm trying to find things to do, right? Let's go, next, you know? To imagine someone who's, who has that much to do, sitting contentedly, because his wife is still having a nice time. Mm. And that, that was his whole life. Um, it was about the other person, and he had time for everything. Three. To be a grandfather, to be a father, to be a neighbor. Through your extensive research, did you ever determine how good a basketball player he was or not? So it, it's uh, both for Bruvain, Yvonne him. it's very important that sports uh, for young people is extremely, extreme. I went to interview Bruvain in Staten Island and camp Staten Island, and he was bemoaning the fact, it's a very, it's a very stark yeshiva, Staten Island. It's very, very, boys are intense. They learn a lot. So Bruvain was bemoaning the fact that they don't play a good ball game anymore because they realized that through paddle ball they could get the same exercise and ah, baseball, let's the, be honest, when you're playing baseball, right. you're really not getting that much exercise. Right. You're up. Uh, every hour and a half, you get to the plate. Right. If, you, if you're a good hitter, so maybe you run a couple of bases. <laughs> if you're playing outfield, maybe you'll move a couple of feet to get a fly ball. But other than that, you're standing around in the sun, relaxing. So the boys in Seth Island made the judgment that it's not worth it for them to play baseball because there's no exercise. They'd rather play paddle ball. <laughs> so Google is bemoaning the fact. He says, we can't get together a minion anymore to play ball, he tells me. <laughs> You know, the good day is Friday afternoon. We had a good ball game. It's over. So it's, it's, it was very important to them that, that the Bacham should, should have that outlet and that exercise and that enjoyment of it as well. And as my boys know, there are some fine scenes who are really good ball players. So I guess they uh, I guess they got it from somewhere. Huh? <laughs> the book is called Rib David, The Life and Legacy of Rib David Feinstein. Stroll Besser is with us. Go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code RADIO. The World Trade Center is attacked uh, a mile away from Yish- from the uh, Masifta Tavares Yushalayim, Rav David Feinstein's yeshiva. What was Rav David's response after the planes hit? Are you asking me? Yeah. Reveal it to the audience. I thought it was pretty unique. So, I'm so happy you asked that question because... Uh because um, uh, because I got an initial, initial additional detail that's not in the book. Somebody only told me after. Yeah, is that um, David stepped outside and, and I'm sure you remember that they all too well. Sure. And smoke is pouring down and you see the sky and you're so close to to the center of terror and there's panic in the air and nobody knows what to do. They're waiting for David steps out and he looks towards Lower Manhattan and he sees the, the clouds of smoke and he he says, uh, okay goes back in and starts for a Seder. Right. And people are still quiet and they're numb. And he says, Tyra is the most, is, is the strongest chus, I think. I don't remember the word he used. The, the most important chus, Tyra is the only thing that we could do now. Tyra is stronger than anything. And he sat there and learned the regular for a Seder with smoke passing by the windows and said, sheer, like every other day, believing, as he always did, that Tyra is the most effective force to combat any kind of evil and any kind of terror. The thing I didn't know when somebody wrote to me after, they were there that day and they said, there was one thing you missed. He immediately dispatched somebody to go bring uh, bottles of juice and cake to, you know, from the local the bakery was still open then because he said people will be walking by the yeshiva all day trying to get back home. Right. We're going to be one of the routes. We have to make sure that there's food and drink for them here. Yeah, they'll come in to use the washroom. They'll come in to, if, if there's phones that were working, I don't know. 
but they'll come in into yeshiva so that any any Jewish person certainly will feel welcome coming in here. We have to make sure that there's food for them as well. So he bought whatever food was available and made sure that the yeshiva was ready for that. Now it's funny. Which be- is classic. Yeah, but, but it's funny, and some would argue if that's classic. because No, well, the second part is classic, correct, what you just said in, in terms of thinking of others in the chesed 100%. But, uh, uh, but somebody, a Torah giant with the curiosities that he had, right, and the, and the you, know, you would think that he would be standing there looking at the building, you know, watching what's happening, the, the rescue vehicles going by, etc. I mean, it's quite a scene right there at the yeshiva, you know, a mile away from the World Trade Center. And you would think based on this conversation that he was the type that his curiosities would keep him outside and would get him involved in, you know, the day's activities. And yet, he says, now is the only, the only thing we can do now is start Seder and get into the basement. You know, uh, when there's a time of tremendous alarm or fright, the child just wants to be with his mother, or a couple just wants to be with each other, with their spouse, he, he needed to be in his matters with his Gemara. That's where right. he understood. That was right. That, that the world, what he could do to make the world whole when it's breaking is to be by his Gemara saying, Shira. That's, that's, that's pretty consistent with him. Right. That the title was his life. You know, that's somehow, like I said, it doesn't make sense because he had time for so many people and so many things. But he learned so much. He spent so much. He started his day and ended his day learning. And in between, it was, it was all that chesed generated by that learning. I don't have a good example in front of me, but his psak halacha, when he was the decisor in so many situations, both, again, on a communal level and a personal level, for so many people, it was not, it seems, based on what you wrote in the stories that you tell, it wasn't just the psak, but he, he had kept in mind so many sensitivities about what it might mean for the future of this couple or how they might view, you know, what he's recommending. Right. Which I, again, I don't have a good example in front of me, but the, the, it, it is such an insight. Perfect example is the name that a couple came to ask him if they could give a name for a relative, a deceased relative who had had an easy life. Undergone different challenges and David said they shouldn't do it. So when they left, one of the Talmudim who knew of David's Psakim consistently said the Roshiva usually holds that it's okay. The Roshiva didn't have a problem with this and this issue. He would say to give a name. He says, yeah, but if you saw the way they were asking, the mother was anxious. The, the woman was anxious about giving the name. And that means that if I would have told her to give it, anytime the kid would have gotten a, a cold or a strep or kicked out of school or scratched it, you know, he would, she would have said, see, we shouldn't have given that name. So it's just inviting a life of anxiety and worry for that personality. So for her, it's not a good idea. Wow. And that was classic with David to, to be able to identify the people asking the question and understand to give an answer for them. It's unbelievable. I'm smiling again. Because these stories are just, again, you know, when, when you had the schus, when you have the absolute privilege of, uh, seeing this happen on a regular basis. And again, not, not that I'm a Talmud or so close, but just, you know, the circumstance put us in this situation. Our family benefited from it. Uh, Yisrael Besser, before you go, I got to I gotta ask you to tell the story about Rav David walking out in an area that didn't have an A-roof with a tissue in his pocket. Could you, uh, do you remember that one? I remember it, and, and it's such a beautiful story because, again, it says so much about the human Within Rav David, that he was that he embraced and encouraged other people to embrace halacha is built for humans. We see this all over, and human error is factored into halacha all the time. So Rav David was in Brooklyn for Shabbos, and Rav David was very strong against uh, you know the permissibility of having an area from Brooklyn. He thought right. it was not allowed, right. according to his father Shita as well. Right. And at the same time, he walked this Rav David esque tightrope of complete respect for people who care. You know, I, I wrote there just a quick haktama, a quick introduction that a Rav in Brooklyn had said, uh, is they Rav allowed? He said, no. He said, what about someone in a wheelchair? He said, no, you can't do it. I mean, he really held that there was no, right. at the same time, he said, if guests are in the shul and they carry 
do I have to say something? He says, of course not. They rely on their Rabbanim. Right. Why would you say something? Right. Which is classic of Dov, the right. ability to respect that they asked another of, but there's no heter. You know, he was able yep. to do that, both of that. Right. So David was in Brooklyn for, for a Semcha, and Shabbos, after the meal, one of the great nieces noticed that he had a tissue sticking out of his jacket pocket, you know, by his chest. Right. So it was strange. You know, he was a proper person, but to go say something to him, but she wasn't sure, because Hitzah, Hitzah, carrying on Shabbos is a problem. And he was done benching already. He was about to leave, and he still had the tissue. So she said to him, Uncle David, you have a tissue sticking out of your pocket. She tells her, I'm so grateful to you. Well, let me tell you, I know that there's no Erev here, and I knew that over the course of a meal, you know, you use a tissue or something might end up in your pocket. I, we, we ate the meal, and we davened here, and I wanted to remind myself before I left that there's no Erev. So I stuck a tissue in my pocket so that if somebody, I, I made it prominent. He had used the tissue during the meal, and he hadn't been able to get up and put it away for whatever reason. He said, I stuck it in a visible way so that if somebody would see me, they would tell me before I left rather than hide it. <laughs> and now, Baruch you saved me. Thank you. That means he, he, he was teaching a lesson at the same time, of course, which is to err as human and protect yourself. Yep. Don't be, he's the God of Hadar. This man is a person who has a Yep. Take so seriously yep. that he, Rabbi Yashav would stand up when he came into the room. Rabbi Yashav took his sakam seriously. He's putting a little tissue out of his pocket. Like, I might forget. And, 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 and Rav David was probably wondering why Rabbi Yashav was standing. For sure. You know, for sure. He didn't um, see himself that way. But how empowering is that to any uh, other person to make a mistake in halacha and ask? And by the, how many stories, I, I know you wouldn't know the exact number. How many stories do you think are in here? About how many? Stories are in this book. You have any clue? Like so, in, uh, in, in an average book? book that you write, how many stories usually get in? Is it two hundred? Is it? I would say uh, five hundred. Five hundred. So obviously, 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 we can't go through all of them, and I am highly recommending this to everybody. I, I've I've said this before about some of your books, surely best, sir. Some of them are amazing musters for him, and I think you would agree that reading this book will give people, you know, some some pause and time to think about different subtle changes we should be making in our own lives, personal relationships, how sensitive we have to be to others, etc. And of course, attitude toward Torah study just by reading this book. So I think you'd agree with me on that, right? We could put this in the we could put this in the muster shelf or not. <laughs> the, the, I, you know, I, I would hope so. I would hope that there's that this is a book. There's so much potential in every area of life to be a normal, good, sweet, sincere person, and well learned in Torah. You know, you, you yeah, can I mean, be. A, I wrote there that the Tommy didn't said David did not expect them to know what he knew because they weren't him. He expected them to treat other people the way he did, to give it all, to give it all. Right. Of it doesn't look was something he expected. Uh, finally, uh, in a typical situation where somebody's an Avel and now they are davening for the Amud every day and the Shiurim are getting delayed because they daven much slower than the average Shliach Tzibor, what would most people do or recommend, Srili Besser? I would contend, I would contend, most would try to replace that Shliach Tzibor, maybe recommend they only do part of davening, etc., etc. Could you reveal to this audience, this precious audience well, of mine? Why can't you just go faster? Look at the world. Right. Man, come right. on. Why does could it take you, a year and a half to could, say, yeah. Could you reveal to this precious audience what Rav David Feinstein did in that situation, please? Or say, um, it, just the yeah, idea, exactly. So the situation was that a boy was an Avil, a teenage boy, Rahman Osman was an Avil. He was davening for the Avon Yeshiva, and he wasn't, he wasn't familiar with the words yet, and it took him a very long time. So breakfast to the boys, instead of being half an hour, oh, it was 25 minutes. It was breakfast, not So sure. Rabbi Ginsburg went to ask uh, Rav David, what should we do? On one hand, the boys in Avalon's got a daven. On the other hand, the boys need their need breakfast. Their breakfast. Time, right. 
So uh, I, I think a lot of other people might say, okay, so the boys will have 25 minutes, too bad. Achai right. is for their friends. Right. For Tony for 11 months. And uh, they'll have breakfast 25 minutes. If David wouldn't give up the boys having their full half an hour breakfast because the boys need to relax. They need that. He also, the boy who's uh, will need sedan, and we need to give him time. We're not pressuring him. So David, whose best moments of the day, by all accounts, were an hour and a half to add four shachas. He would come to yeshiva. Uh, I wrote this. If David didn't take rides, he loved to walk. Right. But that time from his house in the morning to yeshiva, he would take a ride because he was so eager to get his right. to his gemara and his, his cedar ready. He learned alone in the empty basement every morning for shachas. It was a happy time, un, undisturbed time. But David said, "Okay, we'll start shachas five minutes earlier." For him to give up, <laughs> he was giving up five minutes of his of his because we're not touching the boy's breakfast and we're not touching that boy who needs to daven for right. the almonds right to daven the way he he's able to daven for for his mother's neshama. So we'll, we'll start Shachos earlier, just until he finishes the year. And you would appreciate Instantly. it. And you would appreciate if I remembered stories accurately, right? <laughs> I, I, I never expect anything less than you. Know. I almost got it right, but he got my point. It was you much. It, right. it was much better with the, t- the the details that you provided. I can tell you that much. But yes, of course, he he said, "Let's start davening five minutes earlier," which ended up taking from his time. Gave the boys their full allotted uh, uh, free time to eat breakfast and and relax. And of course, did not put any pressure on this teenage Ovel, uh, which he was so sensitive about, putting pressure on anybody to feel a certain way or do a certain thing. Just just a couple of the lessons that we've learned from his incredible life. And there's so much more, folks. We didn't even discuss the relationship with his father and the incredible lineage of the Feinstein Mishpacha, etc. There's so much in here. you got to read it. Get the book. Get it as soon as you can. Enjoy it. It's called Reb David, The Life and Legacy of Rabbi David Feinstein. The Stroll Besser, as always, an absolute delight speaking to you. Happy Hanukkah and uh, a big mazel tov. A big, I appreciate that. And a big mazel tov on the book. A big mazel tov. One after the other, you continue to produce amazing and incredible biographies, Musa's Farm, or whatever category people want to put it in. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm grateful to you. Have a happy Hanukkah. Thanks so much. Yisrael Besser. The book is Rib David, The Life and Legacy of Rabbi David Feinstein. Buy it. Enjoy it. Smile as you read it. <laughs> and tell the stories to your family as you're reading them. Um, go to artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio. Artscroll.com. Make sure to use promo code radio.